You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. ...speak about their trials. In this, that is, the salvation that God is keeping for them and them for it. In this you greatly rejoice... Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. One of the differences between Peter and his readers, he had seen and loved the Lord Jesus. But these believers have never seen him, and yet, like Peter, they love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Since we began this series a couple of weeks ago, uh, there have been two uh, very interesting judgments passed down uh, by the courts that govern us. Uh, The verdict that was passed down uh, by the European court in the case of British Airways against Nadia Awida That, as I'm sure you all remember, uh, was the case when this lady, a Coptic Christian, uh, was banned by British Airways from wearing a cross uh, round her neck. Uh, British Airways uh, banned her from doing that, and the case has been running in the courts, has gone all through our court system, eventually to the European court, and the European court in its wisdom, uh, decided that the British courts had gone too far in siding with British Airways. And if I recollect correctly, uh, British Airways themselves had already changed their regulations, and now it's okay to fly the plane even if you've got a cross round your neck. The second decision that was handed down, I think just during the course of the last few days, is the famous case of the Northern Ireland Commission for Equality against Asher's Bakery. That was, you remember, the bakery in Northern Ireland run by Christians who declined a request from a member of the public Uh, whose sexual preferences they said they did not know, declined to decorate a cake that this individual ordered with the words, support gay marriage. They declined to do this on the basis that this was contrary to their Christian convictions. Uh, They were taken to court. uh, The The government commission, it is a government commission, apparently spent around £40,000 over the issue of uh, 
a few words on a cake and the uh, Northern Ireland court, uh, the judge, because the law is just the law. Judges are there to interpret and apply the law. The law decided in favor or the judge decided in favor of the Northern Ireland uh, Commission for Equality. It's not my concern to harangue you for the next half hour on the extent to which, particularly in that last decision, it seems to me a judge who thought clearly would come to the conclusion, favor the Equality Commission, and chaos breaks out in the law until eventually somebody says, if you keep applying the law in this way, we are going to spend hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of pounds and vital court time dealing with matters that should be dismissed. Judges do not make the law. Our members of parliament, I hope you know this, they are the ones who make the law. Judges are there to interpret the law because the law always needs to be interpreted to particular situations. Now, irrespective of what you think about the European court's decision that made other decisions that would, uh, did not favor Christians, what you think about the courts in Northern Ireland and whether that should be taken further, I think these two court cases perfectly illustrate the context, the, the cultural context in which we are living the Christian life and underscore how like the context of these early Christians our context is. And it's this that makes First Peter an especially relevant letter to us in our own culture today. And also, I think, ought to give us a sense, it actually can be very exciting to be living in a day when the difference between the gospel and the culture is plain for all to see. Marvelously, it is now, apart from foolish people who write into the newspapers and think that Christianity is entirely about people being nice to each other and loving each other. Well, every religion in the world is supposed to be about that. That misses the essential point of Christianity. But apart from these people who think that Christianity means that we are nice to each other, we forgive ourselves, and we tolerate everything until somebody insults their wife. And then they realize there really are absolutes. Apart from that, it's becoming very clear to us as Christians, and it's becoming very clear to our culture that our culture is not the same thing as the gospel. And our gospel, in fact, is now increasingly being seen to be what it actually is and is experienced by many Christians throughout the world. 
profoundly cultural challenging, profoundly countercultural, but at the end of the day has the only message that can ultimately heal the culture and transform the culture and bless the culture. And it should be, yes, it should perhaps cause us a certain nervousness because we feel our weakness. But at the same time, there is something exhilarating in living in a day when it's clear whether you're a believer or whether you simply belong to the culture. Whether you say you are free in the culture, which essentially means you're a prisoner to the culture, or whether you are free from the culture because Jesus Christ has made you free. One of the marvelous things about the experience of the apostles in the early church and the experience of Christians throughout the world for 2,000 years is this, that the Christian life can be lived anywhere, under any regime, under any distress, in the face of any persecution, in the front of any affliction. And these two court cases, I think, underline for us that we are now living in a time where British Airways, as a major corporation, has come to the conviction that expressions of Christianity are bad for the bottom line. And at least one of the courts in Northern Ireland has come to the conviction it is okay to have Christian convictions but you may not always practice those Christian convictions, nor will this particular judge allow you the privilege of exercising the rights of your own conscience, driven by the gospel. And this was the kind of situation that was emerging in the Roman Empire. And we are beginning to live in that day. And unless we experience an extraordinary turnaround, uh, an awakening from God, then our children and grandchildren will very much be living in a culture where to be a Christian believer is a hindrance rather than a help. Some of us are old enough to remember that in mainstream churches in our childhood, if you were a bank manager, you would be an elder in the local church. If you were the doctor or a teacher, it would be the done thing. And perhaps to the surprise of many, the very reverse has come true. And First Peter is written into such an environment. And you remember he begins by praising God. He begins by praising God. I've said already, he doesn't write, my dear friends in Turkey, I am so sorry about this. Isn't it terrible? Aren't the courts that are judging some of you awful and corrupt? You know, shouldn't we try and go and live in an island somewhere? Would Patmos seem preferable to this? No, he begins by praising God. And in doing that, he's doing something immensely important that I hope we'll see together this evening. 
He's praising God for the privileges of the gospel, for the reality of salvation, for the security of salvation. He's saying God has secured our salvation in heaven, and the same God who secured it there is securing you. They are both guarded, kept by God's power, and your salvation is ready for you. He's prepared it for you. He's just waiting for you now to come home, and he will get you there. But now in these verses that we've just read, he is saying, in the meantime, you will rejoice in this salvation in the face of suffering and privation and affliction. You will rejoice in this salvation in the face of the trials that you experience. Now, that's very good news. It's wonderful news. But there is, if I can put it this way, a little problem of potential disconnect. It's possible for me as a Christian believer to read this and to say to myself, isn't it absolutely fantastic that in the middle of affliction and privation and suffering, you can rejoice? Isn't that marvelous? As I stand here pontificating about it as nobody is running in the door to pull me away and arrest me. When I know relatively little affliction, it's a glorious thing to know that if you ever do experience affliction, you'll be able to rejoice in it. But what's the disconnect? The disconnect is it's a lot easier to say this now than actually to fully taste and experience that joy when you're in the middle of the affliction. And what Peter is wanting to do here for us is this, and it's a very key thing for us to understand. He's wanting us, whenever we experience affliction, so to connect our affections to our understanding of the gospel that in the middle of those afflictions we will still be able to rejoice. So this is not a matter of me screwing up my eyes and my fists and saying, I'm really going through the mill here, I'm supposed to rejoice. This is the truth of the gospel capturing my affections so that my affections for the gospel outweigh the pain of my afflictions. So it isn't just a matter of thinking clearly, which is, of course, in Scripture, vitally important. We need to be able to think clearly. We need to know the truths of the gospel that will sustain us in affliction. But then it's not just a matter of gritting your teeth and saying, I know these truths and I'm going to make these truths work. It's the way in which the wonder of these truths captivates my affections. The wonder of the gospel captures my love. And that wonder, that captivation, that gripping of my affections makes my affections for Jesus Christ stronger than the negative affections that the possibility of suffering produces in my life. And this is the reason he begins with doxology. 
He's really saying to these Christians in modern Turkey, he's really saying, as, as long as your gaze is fixed on your afflictions, your suffering, this persecution, then these afflictions are just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And what you're going to discover is that your affections, your, your emotional dispositions, your whole, your whole way of thinking and feeling about life is going to get crushed smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's exactly what happens to some Christians, isn't it? And we begin to live in fear and terror, almost paralysis. And so the truth of the gospel Peter wants to capture my affections in order that the power of those affections may begin to diminish my natural fear of going through affliction. Thomas Chalmers, one of the founders of the free church, humanly speaking, preached a very famous sermon, actually the title of the sermon, more famous than the sermon itself in which he spoke about the expulsive power of a new affection. Notice not just the expulsive power of a right understanding of the truth, but the expulsive power of a new affection that suffocates the old affections, that suffocates the antagonistic and fearful affections that I may have by nature and expels them, not because it denies their existence, but because it leaves it and them less and less room to breathe. And this is actually why by the end of this little section, he's speaking about a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, a sense, even as he's, as he's dictating this letter, he's feeling the power of the gospel. And it's not just that the truth of the gospel is stronger than the falsehood of the world. It is that the truth of the gospel produces an affection in the believer for Christ that makes Christ large that enlarges my soul in order to experience the fullness of the riches of Jesus Christ. And what's kind of marvelous to me in these verses is that Peter begins by speaking about the fact that there are various kinds of trial and affliction. Verse 6, he says, In your salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. He's not denying, notice he's not denying that there are sore experiences. You may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, the, the, the adjective he uses here that's translated all kinds of trials actually means multicolored. That's its, that's its base meaning. Uh, and so he's saying It isn't just one kind of trial. He's saying in the Christian life, you face many different kinds of trial. 
Some of them are personal trials. Some of them will be trials brought upon you by opponents of the gospel. Some of them will be physical. Some of them will be mental. Some of them may be familial. Many different kinds of trials that we experience in the Christian life. He's not saying the gospel works for you only in the following three kinds of trial. He's saying it is possible for you to rejoice in the gospel even although in many different kinds of ways and inevitably many different kinds of ways because no two people ever experience exactly the same trial. You know, we may say to people, I understand what you're going through, but we don't. We only understand what we went through or what we are going through. We don't understand what anyone else is going through in actual fact. We only have glimpses of things that we share with them, but we are not them. And so, in a sense, what Peter is saying is, I want to tell you how it is that the gospel works for every believer in every conceivable trial that every believer ever goes through. And actually, the, 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 the ultimate answer he gives to us is uh, embedded in the middle of chapter 4. And I think it may be deliberate, but in the middle of chapter 4, he uses exactly the same adjective that he has used here in chapter 1. He says, trials come in many different colors. But then in chapter 4, he says, here is the good news of the gospel. Grace comes in many different colors too. Or if I can put it like this, the afflictions that we experience in Jesus Christ, believers find in Jesus Christ such a sufficiency of grace, such an adequacy, such a glory in Jesus Christ, that it seems to us that Jesus Christ fits every situation. There is no situation in life, no affliction in life, in which there isn't a matching remedy in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean that we will no longer feel grieved by our afflictions. But it does mean that that grief will not destroy the joy that we have in the gospel, even as we experience these afflictions. Now, what do, we need to, what do we need to understand for this to be true? Well, this is what Peter is explaining to us. How it is possible, even in the midst of being grieved by what we go through, it would be ostrich-like, head in the sand, not to be grieved by things that actually grieve us. You know, sometimes you hear people saying Christians shouldn't be depressed. But if, if I judge the world aright, Christians should be depressed because there are things that are depressing. I don't mean clinically depressed. 
But if you don't feel sad by things that actually sadden, then you have a problem. So the gospel never says to us, sad things never make us sad. Grievous things never make us grieve. Remember how Paul puts it? He says, you don't grieve like the rest of mankind because of the hope of the gospel. He doesn't mean you don't grieve. Jesus grieved. Would you have gone to Jesus as he wept openly at the grave of Lazarus and said, Jesus, you shouldn't be crying? Of course you wouldn't. Because this was one of the saddest and most grievous things that had ever happened to Jesus. So the gospel is not dehumanizing us. The gospel is not closing down our natural emotions and affections. But it's cleansing them. And it's stabilizing them so that we can live in a world where we both sorrow and rejoice, where there is grief and there is hope. And how does that happen? And Peter's answer, as would be true everywhere in the New Testament, is that we need to, we need to be able to put these afflictions, these trials, need to be able to put them under a divine microscope. And analyze them. And see them not for what they are in themselves, but see them for what they are in the economy of God. Because that's how they really are. You know, isn't it interesting? We still live in a day where people think that how they see things is how things really are. But it's not true, is it? even in the way we think about each other. We assume how I see that person is how they are and, and uh, the reality may be completely different. I don't know everyone I've ever known who, is, who has ever preached has told me what a mess they make of things. And the odd thing frequently seems to be the thing you make the biggest mess of. Nobody notices you're making a mess. Turns out to be the the message that seems clearest and most helpful to people. Why is that? Because we're not actually seeing things as they are. We're seeing things through the way we feel or the way we think. And what Peter is doing here is he is bringing to bear the truth of Scripture on the afflictions of these believers so that they can see their afflictions not the way those who afflict them want to see them. Not the way those who afflict them want them to see their afflictions. But what these afflictions look like when you put them under the divine microscope, look at them through God's revelation in Scripture and through those marvelous lenses that are built into the biblical microscope, you discover what you see under the microscope is different from what you saw with the naked eye. Um, those of you who are life scientists know you understand that. 
what you discover when something is put under a super-duper, duper-super-duper microscope. And I presume, since we didn't use microscopes when I was at school, I presume sometimes you stand back and you want to say to your colleague, see that? None of us ever knew that was there. Now, what are the things he mentions here? Well, first of all, he says in verse 6, when you put your afflictions under the divine microscope, the first thing you see is that these trials, these afflictions in your faith are productive. He says you've had to suffer in all kinds of trials. And perhaps we should retranslate that. What he's saying is, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, it is necessary for you. So this isn't, he's not saying, well, maybe you'll have to suffer, maybe you won't have to suffer, it's kind of all, you know, happenstance. No, he, he uses a little expression that uh, keeps on popping up in the New Testament. And it's especially present in the Gospels. That means something is a divine necessity in your life. And this itself is a, is a marvelous truth to grasp. Here are these giants seeking to destroy the Christian church. Here are people who seem to us to be giants who are uh, seeking to uh, cause us pain because of our Christian belief. Here's ways of suffering that may have got nothing to do with the persecution of Christians that cause us grief. But when we put them under the microscope as Christians... We're able to say, because of the absolute wisdom of my Heavenly Father, I know that nothing comes into my life apart from passing through the grid of His perfect wisdom. And if He permits this in my life, then there is a divine necessity in this affliction with a view to what he plans to produce through it. And that's a very important thing to grasp and it it transforms our understanding. It means if we have this consciousness that the Heavenly Father regards this as necessary for me, however mysterious that may be, you know, my friends, Um, when we say to God, why are you doing this? What if God's answer, if Christ doesn't return, has got to do with something that's going to take place in 564 years and six months' time? Are you ready for that answer? If you had said, for example, to uh, to, uh, Naomi, when she said, why is, why is God allowing this suffering in my life? And uh, if you were to say, well, actually, it's to get King David on the throne. And it's to produce the family line of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I think she would have been inclined to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. That makes no sense to me whatsoever. Most of the answer to my question, Lord, why am I going through this, is an answer I am completely incapable of understanding. But there is an element of it that I am capable of understanding. And that is if there is a divine necessity attached to the affliction through which God is presently leading me, then at least some part of that necessity has got to do with me and with what he means to do in me or with what he means to do through me or just with what he means to make me. Many years ago, I had the great privilege of uh, being given the papers of a friend who had died as a relatively young man. Um, And I was given these papers, I guess, to essentially to write a biography of him. And this was a young man who had had literally done nothing but study. He was in his 30s when he died. He had had brain tumors operated on, inoperable brain tumors. He died in his 30s. He had never been anything but a student. Absolutely, he'd done nothing. And I remember poring over these papers, trying to make, you know, almost saying, God, God, just give me, for the comfort of those who loved him, give me some insight to help me make sense of what he went through. Do you know the conclusion I drew insofar as I had any insight into the purposes of God? the conclusion I drew was that he went through all of this not in order to do anything, but to be a Christian sufferer in the fellowship of those who knew nothing about that suffering. And of course, all of us want to make more of our lives than that. Don't we? we want to do something, leave our mark, But that's such worldly thinking, isn't it? The mark of that, friend, is on me for the rest of my life. And that's the only thing that lasts for all eternity. You build a multinational corporation and you will have gone, perhaps, before it has. And it one day will go. It won't last for eternity. Apple will not last for eternity. For those of us who are not Apple, that may be good news. Some of us have no idea what Apple is. It's not going to last for it. Here are people whose whole beings are consumed with building these international corporations. And they're not going to last for eternity. Whereas eternity is going to last forever. And so you see, at the end of the day, The only thing you ever do that's going to last forever is what you do with you and what you do in response to God's word. And forgive the grammar. It's not what you do, it's what you be that really counts. And when you begin to see this, Lord, your passion, 
next to your passion to glorify my Savior, your passion is to make me like him. And I must be off my head if I think that that's easy. Either for you, since it cost his lifeblood, or for your spirit who's working within me, or that it's going to be easy for me. And this is what Peter is teaching us. It's why the rest of Scripture is so full of the ways in which, um, you know, if you don't go through affliction, says the anonymous author of Hebrews. Maybe this was the reason the anonymous author stayed anonymous, because uh, this was strong language. If you don't experience affliction as a Christian, you're probably not a Christian. You are only bastards, says the author of Hebrews. Only illegitimate children whose father doesn't care a button about them never undergoes discipline. And so he's teaching us that the trial of our faith is, is productive. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans 5. He says, tribulation works patience and patience works endurance. It produces character. You see, when we, when we catch this, then we are... We are not dominated by the afflictions, although they grieve us. We are captivated by the unspeakable wisdom of the Heavenly Father who looks upon these petty people or these attendant circumstances that seem to have grown so large and some of them so antagonistic to us. And he says... He who sits in the heavens has a good laugh because he's thinking, you have no idea that when you believe you are working in the strongest possible way against my will, you are actually instruments through which and whom I'm working out my will to make my dear child more like my incarnate son. So the trial of our faith, he says, yes, it brings grief, but it's productive. And then he says, not only is this the case, the trial of our faith is productive, but through these afflictions, the the authenticity of our faith is confirmed. Verse 7, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, may be proved genuine. And he uses this picture that the scriptures love to use of of metal, precious metals, in this instance gold being refined in fire and the the metallurgist, uh, as it were, um, just, just bringing off the surface the, the, um, the deformities or the, the pollutions that there have been. And uh, I suppose someone who was, a, who was a master refiner was able to, as it were, not only detect every impurity, but able to, to remove that impurity without removing the gold at the same time. And it's such a, such, a, such a picture, isn't it? Even although this is not our culture, unless 
you know, unless you go up into the, the whatever hills in Scotland may still have gold in them. You know, you're, a, you're an amateur gold digger. Um, the picture is so clear that the fire is, is to refine so that we, we come forth as, as pure and, and genuine. And actually that's how it works, isn't it? Um, that's, I always think that's the, I mean, now that I'm old, of course I would say this kind of thing. It's one of the blessings of not belonging to a church where nobody's over 29. Actually, you know, while I'm on a bender, one of the reasons so many modern songs have no sorrow in them is because they've been written by people in churches who are too young statistically to die very often. Isn't that the case? You see. But when you're in a church where there are, where there are people who go around with sticks, well, that's when you see this. That's when it, it subliminally begins to sink into you. And you need to learn to make the connection. The reason they shine is because they've been in the furnace. That's the way God does things. You know, maybe this is an old person speaking, but I don't think so. Uh, I wonder if, let's say you're a college student uh, or, or you're just relatively young and working and you know, you meet people who just seem to have, they glide through life. They're, they're good looking, their teeth are straight. Um, you know, they, they, if, you, if you ask them, um, you know, how did you put yourself through college? The answer is, parents put me through college and bought me the car and insured the car and put gas, petrol in the car. Um, Why is it you feel, I'm not really sure who this person is? You know, and you like me, don't you like, don't you like people that you can get your hands on? I mean metaphorically, and you know who they are, and you know where you are with them. And that's why our, our spiritual forefathers used to say, the greatest conceivable affliction for a Christian is never to experience affliction. Because this is how God refines us. This is why somebody who, 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 who never, who's never been disappointed. You know, you remember that girl or boy at school? You know, they always end up as the school captain and the ducks. And they were, you know, they played for Scotland and all the rest of it. And they, you know... But you know, my dear friends, if they continue in that trajectory for the next 30 years and you meet them, unless disappointment and affliction and sorrow has come into their lives, they will be as superficial as they were when they were the fellow or the girl of whom everybody in the school was jealous. Because character is not built by never facing opposition. Um, you know, people are getting ready for the Olympics again. 
aren't they? Or for the world championships. How do you do that? You, 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 you go and take a sauna every day and you get as much rest as you can and basically that's it, don't you? And because if you went into the gym and started exercising, it, you would feel the pain. But you see, the development only takes place through the things that cause you to feel the pain. And that's what Peter's saying. And he knew about it, didn't he? he? I mean, he must have been one of those Christians who would have said to you, I've learned far more in the fire than I ever learned sitting beside the slowly running waters. I learned far more in the tempest in the sea of Galilee than I would have learned if I'd dug my heels in and said, well, I'm not going with you lot across to the other side. It's, and you see, when, when you see that and then your affections are, Lord, how, how amazing you are. I've always wanted it to, I've always wanted it to be the wrong way, the, the other way around. I just hate challenges. I don't even do crossword puzzles. The idea of being stretched by these strange people who don't use the English language the way it was meant to be used. Or games. But you see, I'll never be any good at crossword puzzles or any kind of puzzle unless I expose myself to being stretched. So Peter is building up this, this picture that, that the trial of our faith is productive and that through it the authenticity of our faith is confirmed. And that's the beautiful thing. David Ellis and I, forgive me David for dragging you into the sermon, we, we used to visit at different times an, an, an elderly, two elderly ladies who were uh, related to one another. And um, one of them was almost bent double and to to look at you she had to kind of go like this and she used to be in the hospital for these kind of injections she would get and I don't know about David whenever I walked out of the house her name was Mrs. Sweet I used to think sweet by name sweetened by affliction she didn't need to do anything she just needed to be. And that's the great thing. And then he adds, of course, as he moves on to the end of this passage in verses 8 and 9. Here's something else that draws out my affection. The trial of my faith is productive. The authenticity of my faith is confirmed. And amazingly, the, the saving fruit of my faith is already tasted. Look at the way he puts it in uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, etc., are going to bring praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So there's, there's pie in the sky when you die, and it's really good pie. Okay, so there is pie in the sky when you die. But now he says... But there's not only pie then, there's pie now. You can have your cake and eat it with the gospel. 
as far as the glory of God is concerned. Because although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Now here are the, here are the quintessential elements of a great relationship. Hey, if you're not married, listen to this very carefully and don't transgress this principle. For a strong and healthy relationship, you need two things. You need trust and you need love. Those of us who have ever counseled young people with respect to love and marriage have said, for pity's sake, do not marry somebody you cannot respect. Whatever he does, it's usually a man, do not marry somebody you cannot respect. Because respect is of the very essence of the relationship. And love. Actually, that was the way it used to be until relatively recently. And in some countries, it's not even relatively recently. I've had many a student who had an arranged marriage. And it always seemed to work. I'll be down there at the end of the service, for those of you who want uh, the service. Uh, Why does it work? Because... When respect is first, love will follow. And it doesn't always go the other way around. And here with Jesus, there's both respect and love. And the amazing thing, this to me is the absolutely, you know, this is not, this is not as it were, the ultimate apologetic for the gospel. But it's a strong proof of the gospel, isn't it? That these Christians in Turkey, how Peter knew them, nobody knows. But he could say about them who had never seen or spoken to the Lord Jesus during the days of his earthly ministry, exactly the same thing he could say about himself as an apostle. I saw him and I trusted him and I love him. And you've never seen him, but you trust and love him too. And because you trust and love him too, he says, even although you don't see him now, you are here and now filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because, and the translation is debated by the scholars, but I think the NIV probably has it right, you here and now are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy Because you are here and now receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is a great New Testament teaching that we already experience in the here and now, however imperfectly and partially, the wonder that we will experience in the there and then. When we see Christ face to face, we will trust him and we will love him. And that will be the bond of our fellowship with him. But we already do that. 
And so the New Testament speaks about a glory that has already begun in our lives. Second Corinthians 3, we are being changed here and now from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit as he, as he, as he fills our hearts with Jesus Christ. And that's what our hearts will be filled with in heaven. Our capacity for him will be so much greater. Our physical sight of him will be so much greater. Our trust in him will be so much greater. And the glory will be so much greater. It will be everywhere. But even now we taste it. We know things that the world doesn't know. We taste things the world has never tasted. And it's these realities, Peter is saying, that sustain us. And so, as we said near the beginning, let me conclude at the end with this. That the afflictions and trials that we go through are as many different colors as there are people in the room. But there is in Jesus Christ such a fullness of grace and adequacy. Such a manifoldness in all that he is. That there is no hue, shade or color of affliction the Christian believer goes through. That doesn't find its matching antidote and strength and grace and transforming power and wisdom. In Jesus Christ. Hey, if you're my generation, you remember when you were a youngster singing, When the Road is Rough and Steep, fix your eyes upon Jesus. He alone has power to keep. Fix your eyes upon Him. Jesus is a faithful friend, one on whom you can depend. He will keep you to the end. So fix your eyes upon Him. It's pretty average poetry, but it's great theology, great theology. So whatever the shade of our affliction, allow the multicolored grace of Jesus Christ and all his love for us and his wisdom in working in us so capture our affections that yes, we will be grieved, but we won't be drowned. And even now, we will taste an unspeakable joy, a taste of glory that will carry us to the very place where we will not only taste it, but see it forever and ever. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the ways in which you work in our lives to increase our capacity to trust him and to love him. Some of us by nature are very fearful people. We fear tests and trials of all kinds. We, we shrink before people who are powerful and influential and eloquent and able to argue with us and who, who dominate us or who are aggressive towards us. We thank you that all that and all those are small by comparison with our Savior. And so we want to fix our eyes upon him 
and know that his grace is sufficient for all of our needs and his strength made perfect whatever our weakness. So help us so to live in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.